I ask you to open up your Bibles to the letter of 1 John, specifically the fourth chapter of John's first epistle, uh, 1 John chapter 4, and we're going to be looking at verse 19 towards the end, and then rolling that into uh, the first verses of of chapter 5. Would you please uh, join me in, in prayer to our Lord and our God? Oh God, Lord, we have just sung of your unbounded love, your relentless love, which pursued us, which gave your highest gift for us, even before you created us. You gave us Jesus as the Lamb of God slain before the foundations of the earth. You gave us of yourself to live the perfect life on our behalf. And Lord God, to, through saving faith, teach us how to love. And teach us what love is. And the wonder of, the wonder of Christ. Lord, we just ask that you will shepherd us as the good shepherd this morning as we look at this text. That through your Holy Spirit we will understand what you have given us here in your word. That through the Spirit you would help us to apply what we, what we read and what we understand. That you would help us to grow in our love. That you would help us to recognize where that true love of God exists and where true love of the brethren exists. That through those things, you would strengthen our faith and the assurance that we are truly your children. We also pray that if there are those who are here this morning who do not know you, who are not yet within the family of God, or that you would use this passage to awaken them to true salvation, that you would use your word through the power of your spirit, Lord God, to remove uh, what they have not yet seen. To, to remove the blinders that keeps them from seeing what they have not seen and open their eyes so they may behold the, the beauty of the gospel and the beauty of Christ and the salvation that results from that. Help us, Lord God, to understand and to run, Lord, with endurance the, the race you have set before us, which includes pursuing a love of the brethren, which includes, Lord, an increased, a, a zealous love for the brethren that marks every true believer. Help us, Lord God, this morning as our shepherd to understand and apply this for your name's sake and the building up of your church for your glory. In your name we pray, amen. So this morning we're going to be looking at 1 John 4, verse 19, and then really going up into verse, all the way to verse 3 of chapter 5. And this morning we're going to be looking looking at this text from from this viewpoint. That is that John gives this passage to us to expose counterfeit love for God. These verses indeed expose counterfeit love for God. Now living with, living with and, and trying to love sin-stricken people in a sinful world can be quite difficult if we're honest with each other. Um, and perhaps you can identify with this short poem by an unknown author. He says this, To live above with saints in love, that will indeed be glory. To live below with saints we know, that is quite another story. And think about that. Thinking about living with the saints above in perfect love and perfect glory, that's something we can cherish. But often, because of our own sin and the sin of others, to live with saints that we know, that is quite difficult at times. Loving each other can be difficult, especially when we look at things from our perspective. This is really the trouble for us. We look at things from our perspective rather than our Savior's. And we try to love in our own strength rather than the strength that God provides. When we walk by the Spirit, instead of following the desires of our flesh we will find the love of the brethren is not burdensome, as we'll see later as we study the text. It's not burdensome at all. And in fact, brings encouragement, refreshment, and joy in the Lord. Now, beloved, there are many people alive today who, though they consider themselves to be Christians, and those who love God simply have no love for the brethren. 
There's no evidence of love for the brethren in their lives. And they especially have no love for other Christians, particularly as it relates to a local church. I'm not just talking about this local church. I'm just saying in local church in general. For one reason or another, they have given up on the local church. Except for the occasional Christian they might run across in their community or workplace, or perhaps even in their own family. They, they have no arena. Uh, they live in no arena in which to practice and perfect the love of the brethren. They might occasionally gather with other Christians, but it's mainly with those whom they have a lot of similarities and they share a lot of the same likes. In, in that kind of environment, it's not, people are not drawn by necessarily the, the sacrificial love that God calls us to love, but they're, they're drawn by the fact that they get the warm and fuzzies uh, to put a summary on it because they like the other people and they enjoy doing what they enjoy, you know, whether it's sports or golfing or you know, talking about the scriptures, um, there, there's a sense of which, like talking about the scriptures is good. I'm not trying to paint that in the same light as maybe some of the other things, but I'm just saying there, there are selfish reasons for gathering, and then there are unselfish reasons for gathering. And those who don't participate in the life of a local church are not in an arena where they get to practice sacrificial love of the brethren. Now, I'm not suggesting that someone whose life is patterned like this can't be saved. I'm not saying that. But as a shepherd of the flock of God here in this local church, and as a herald to those who might listen to the message later on, I must warn you that that disassociation with a local church is disobedience to God's clear command. And I must say that it's, it's a disobedience to his instruction for us not to abandon the gathering of ourselves together. We see that in Hebrews 10.25, among many other places. I must also warn you that disassociation with a local church removes you from the God-given arena of the brethren in which God intends for you to demonstrate his love for his children and the arena in which God uses to perfect his love in you. We read about how God perfects his love in us in, the, in, the, in John chapter 4, looking at that um, in the verses prior to this about the perfected love. But understand that dis- disassociation with the local church puts you in a danger zone as an easy prey for the evil one. So not only is it disobedience, but it, but it does isolate you. The, the, lone, the lone sheep ends up as the dead sheep. Now, I'm not saying you lose your salvation. Don't misunderstand the analogy. Every analogy breaks down at some point. But you're open and vulnerable to an attack that you wouldn't otherwise be open to if you were part of a local church and participating in a local church. Now, I realize to a certain extent, I'm saying this to those who are here, who are gathered with a local church. So take it for what it is. It's not a rebuke of you. But it is a reminder why we must gather together. So we have an enemy that that prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And it's much easier to devour those who are isolated and alone than those who are gathered together. We protect each other. Now understand also, beloved, as we apply this to the text today, that a consistent pattern of disassociation from the local church marks you as one whose love for the brethren, who, who at the very minimum has grown cold. But it could be that the one who disassociates from a local church is one who does not even have love for the brethren. As we'll see from our study of 1 John chapter 3, as we, as we have seen from our study of 1 John 3 and 4, a person who consistently does not love the brethren is not really saved at all and, they, and should have no assurance of salvation at all. And in line with that, and kind of as a summary statement of all that, we're going to look at love one, one more time. Uh, in our passage today, John provides a reminder of the absolute and unbreakable connection between genuinely loving God and sacrificially loving the brethren. Those things cannot be broken. If they are broken, then it, it reveals a counterfeit love for God. So with that as, a, as, as the background, let us, let us read through 1 John, and beginning at verse 19 and reading through uh, verse 3. We love because he first loved us. 
If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And this is the commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and whoever loves the father loves the child born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and observe his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. May the Lord bless the reading of his word this morning. John here in this text exposes counterfeit love for God. It's not the first time he's done this. We've seen this. We've seen him do this uh, with other things. But here he is wrapping up his discussion and teaching on love. John has mentioned love so much that we could could rightly call 1 John the epistle of love. And John's known as the apostle of love. And he's just mentioned love so many times throughout this text. But this is the last time. He is is coming to the close of his letter. And this is the last time that he mentions the love of the brethren. And indeed, he ties that into love of God uh, within this passage. That informs the background of what he's going to say as he moves into the end of his letter. But understand that this, this is his closing statement, his closing argument on love for the brethren. So John provides us a test by which we can use, which we can use to expose counterfeit love. First, applying it to ourselves, looking at our own lives to see if we are really in the faith, but also being able to look at the lives of others, not in a, not in a um, condemning sense, but in the sense of it helps us explain why some people walk away from the local church, why some people walk away um, from that love, even though if they say they love God. So John first gives us what I'll call the basis for the test. And exposing counterfeit love for God, he gives us a basis for the test before he provides the test. And we find this basis in verse 19. So the basis for the test is found in verse 19. It is this, that the, that the love of the brethren is evidence of having been born of God. Let's unpack this just a little bit. Understand that, that what John is saying is a summary. He's taking, he's taking all that he's taught before us and building upon it. As I've said before, John teaches in, in a kind of spiral fashion. He doesn't teach in a linear step-by-step fashion like our Western minds uh, enjoy, uh, which we typically are taught in. And uh, much like, say, the Apostle Paul or something like that, he's not teaching in a linear fashion. He'll teach something and he'll circle back and he's going to remind us of what he said and he's going he's to put it in a different perspective and teach us something else about it. And that's what he's doing here. So in, in some sense, this is nothing new. In other sense, there are little aspects that are new. John reminds us of, of the truths he has touched on before. And we know that repetition is an effective tool, as, as Peter tells us in 2 Peter 3, verses 1 and 2 tell us. It says, This is now, beloved, the second letter I'm writing to you, in which I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder, that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. So that's, that's Peter's uh, admission that he's, he's repeating himself. You know, some, some people get maybe a little frustrated when pastors repeat themselves. And so maybe that's why Peter was explaining why he had to repeat himself. He wanted to stir them up, stir up their sincere minds to remember. And in a sense, that's what John is doing with love. He has hit on the topic of love since at least chapter 3. And we saw it in chapter 4. It was mainly about love. And here we are even going into the end of chapter 4 and the the beginning of chapter 5, still talking about love from much the same perspective. Although, again, adding new elements and aspects to that. But what John wants us to understand in verse 19 is, is what I call the basis for the test. And that is this, that all true believers love. And that's, that's unpacked in the simple statement, we love. We love. And notice the pronoun we John is including himself with the readers to the recipients of a letter to whom he wrote. In other words, the Apostle John is, is making this a universal statement that applies to all genuine, Christ, all genuine Christians, not, 
not just to the recipients of a letter. John has included himself as an apostle. He's saying, we, we love. And this applies to everyone who believes in Jesus Christ and is born again, no matter when they live. It applies to you and to me who are living thousands of years after the fact, after John wrote this letter, because this is an inspired text of Scripture. And John strategically places a certain amount of emphasis upon the pronoun we. And we, we get that, we see that by his use of the other pronoun in, that, in verse 19, that is he. So he's saying, we love, we, we ourselves love because he himself first loved us. So, so note here that John is in this basis for the test. He's saying that we love, that's the statement He's saying that we love, and we'll get to the second part, because he first loved us, but, but it's not only that we love, he's making a statement, he's saying love. Now, as John has used before, as he's done before, he is using the verb here, uh, agapeo, from, from the more familiar term agape, which is the noun version of this. So this is the kind of love which, which makes sacrifices for, for another, John is emphasizing that the love of which he speaks is not based on emotions or passions. It's not based on feelings or passions. It's not that you don't have feelings or passions, but it's not based upon that. It's not prompted by those things. There there are other Greek terms that are used to speak about those other types of loves. Agape love, as we've mentioned before, is a love of action. It is a love that sacrifices As Vine's Expository Dictionary explains, this love can be known only from the actions it prompts. Think about that. This love can only be known by the actions it prompts. It's not something that can be seen if it's not enacted. It requires action. The the, uh, Apostle Paul elaborates on this kind of love, agape love, in 1 Corinthians 13, four, verses 4 to 7. Now, I'll read that to you. Um, you can either turn there and, and read with me, or you can just listen. 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 to 7. Love is patient. Love is kind and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. Does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. Is not provoked. Does not take into account a wrong suffered. Does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Now, the sudden explanation of agape love by the Apostle Paul is it's not exhaustive. It's just merely representative of what agape love does. It, it's representative of the types of actions that are consistent with agape love. Agape love is manifested in sacrificial and selfless actions done for the good of the person without any thought of what we might receive. We're not motivated to love them just because we'll receive something. We're motivated to love because we want the best for that person. D. Edmund Hebert describes agape love as a high, unselfish love which freely seeks the true welfare of the one loved. Again, I'll just just emphasize that. It's a high, unselfish love which freely seeks the true welfare of the one loved. After all, this is the type of love with which God has loved us. It's the love of which we have sung in in the hymns at which we have sung this morning of this great love. It it is this love of which we're um, we're called to to look at. Even in verses, John has recently done this in uh, in chapter 4, when he says in verse uh, verse 9, By this the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. So again, you see the fact how love is an action. God didn't just express warm, fuzzy feelings for us and sweep our sins under the proverbial carpet. He sent himself, his Son, right? to deal with our sins, to become our Savior, which, as I've argued in the past, is the greatest love uh, 
that we'll ever experience. I mean, heaven will be wonderful, but understand that the greatest love of God has already been given to us in giving us his son. There is no greater gift. We'll we'll receive greater manifestations and seeing where our faith will be sight, but understand that's his, his great love. Now, before we go any further, we also need to recognize in the statement we love, we need to highlight that this is not an exhortation. John has used exhortations in the past, and he'll use exhortations in the future, but this is not an exhortation. This is just a statement, a statement of fact. Um, John's not afraid to use exhortations, even talking about love. 1 John 4, 7 says, Beloved, let us love one another, which is an exhortation. But, but here he's just stating a fact. And he's stating it as a fact, and then he's going to use it as the basis for the test for counterfeit love that we're going to see in uh, verse 20. This, this statement of fact is given in the present tense, indicating that this is an ongoing characteristic love. When he says we love, it's not like a one-time action. This is something that is a characteristic. It's something that's a pattern of our lives. Again, it's not a perfected love in the sense that we always do what we ought to do. In, in, uh, in the same way that we still struggle with sin, right? although we're called not to sin. So he's not talk, we're not talking about that, but what is the pattern of a person's life? Is it that they love, is, is love of the brethren a characteristic of the person's life? Now I need to highlight that, that John does not provide an object of love. He simply says, we love. Now I know in certain versions of the Bible, like the New King James Version, you, uh, if you have that, you can see that the pronoun um, him is there. There's an object given. We love him, referring to God. But the better texts don't have that pronoun at all. The object is left open, but it's supplied by the context as we read through it. The context is we love, and the context supplies God and our brethren. Those two are implied by that. Now, John adds to this, um, the, the fact that, uh, or the reason why all true Christians live. And we see that in the second part of verse 19. We love because he first loved us. Now the pronoun he, as I mentioned before, is, is similarly emphatic. We love, we ourselves love, because he himself first loved us. And John adds the word first to teach us that God is the grand initiator of love, which is in line with what we have seen before in, in the verses uh, the prior to, to this verse. It, it's not that we loved God first, but he first loved us. We, we couldn't initiate this love, whether we're speaking of our love for God or our love for the brethren, our love for other Christians, because this type of love mentioned here is supernatural. It doesn't come naturally to uh, fallen human beings. That's why John uses the love of the brethren as a mark of true salvation, because it doesn't come natural. If, if this type of love came naturally to the unredeemed, then what mark of salvation would it serve? It, it wouldn't. So, though it is true that, that God continues to love his people, John is pointing out that God loved us first. Notice the text. He first loved us. He says it's not that... His issue is that the initiation really is where the emphasis of. God still loves his people and he is loving his people. But this text is emphasizing the fact that he loved us in a a particular point in time. And it is a reference to the sending of his son, Jesus Christ, into the the world as propitiation for our our sins. This is a momentary flashback to verses that I've already read to you. 1 John uh, John 4 verses 9 and, and 10. That, that the love of God was manifested in us, that God sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. And then this is love, not that we love God, but he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So we love because he first loved us and having experienced his love and having been born of God, we have received a new capacity to love that cannot be contained. All that is encapsulated in this verse. When John is saying we love because he first loved us, He's saying God initiated it, but you've also experienced it. That's, that's embedded into the context of 1 John 4. We love because he first loved us. You've experienced the love, and even more so, as we as is clear when we get later on in the text, you've been born of God. 
And we, as we've seen throughout, well, not throughout 1 John, but in portions of 1 John, he likens the fact that those who have been born of God share God's characteristics. And that's why he emphasizes the nature of being born again. If you have been born of God, you have his capacity to love one another that you didn't have before that. And that's what happens when the Holy Spirit comes within a person on faith in Jesus Christ. That person is regenerated and born again. They receive that new capacity to love which they did not have prior to that. We love because he first loved us. And having experienced his love and having been born again, we love others. So that's, that's really the basis for the test. That's, the, that's what he wants to remind us in, in very short, succinct verse. We love... We love because he first loved us. And he's just saying all believers are going to love and they're going to love because God has loved them and transformed them and caused them to be born again with that new capacity to love. That's true for all believers. There's no exceptions, not a one. And so from looking at that basis of the test, we move to the explanation of the test or you could say an application of the test in in verse 19. And the test is simply that one one um, cannot love God, truly love God, and hate his brother. And we see that in verse 20. Let's read that together. If, if someone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is what? A liar. A liar. So the situation of the test, it, it's simple, but I want to point out the details. The first detail that's important is the fact that Someone says that they love God. Now, John has used this type of phrase. He's not saying the person actually loves God. He's saying the person says that they love God. This is someone who professes faith in God. They, they say this. This, is a, this hypothetical person is, is claiming to love God. It's a, it's a, and the claim to love God is a claim to be saved. It's a claim to be united with him. It's a claim to know God. But the, the second important detail that John gives us about the, the, the example here is that this person not only claims to love God, says they love God, but they what? He hates his brother. And it's tied in like this um, in verse 20. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother. So there's a, it's, it's like congruent with one another. The claim to love God is happening in the same concurrent situation as the one who's, who hates his brother. Now, John, John wants us to understand that this hypothetical person, which represents anyone today who is saying, I love God, it is at the same time hating his brother while he's saying that he loves God. Now, we need to understand the hate that John speaks of is in contrast to the love of which he speaks of. We said that love is identifiable by its what? Its actions. You can't read people's minds. You can't read their hearts. You don't know their motives. But you see this kind of love by its actions. So how do you think hatred is going to be manifested? John's not asking us to read people's minds. Oh, he hates me. He hates my guts. Or that, you know, it's, it's not, we're not talking about reading people's minds or guessing their motives. This hatred, of which is spoken of in this hypothetical but real situation, uh, realistic situation, you say, is a hatred that is manifested by its actions. And so often in my mind, and probably in yours too, when I hear the word hatred, it's such a strong term that we think of those, those who are like really out to get us, and they're just like, they're, um, they're like terrorists. You know, the terrorists are constantly out to attack anything of the United States. Just kill as many Americans as they can. That's their simple goal. They just, just absolutely hate Americans. So that's a small, small analogy of how we typically use hate. Do they hate? Absolutely. But understand that hatred is not limited, not limited to the extreme. In this situation, John loves to teach by contrast. So he contrasts love with what? Hatred. Notice there's no middle ground. There's no safe, neutral place. And Scripture reiterates this often. You either are loving your brother or you're hating them. You can't just shift it into neutral and say, well, I don't really hate my brother. Okay, in the sense of the terrorist, of that kind of extreme hatred, yeah, you don't hate your brother. But biblical hatred is simply the lack of love. 
It's simply the lack of love. Love is known by its actions. Hatred is known by its actions. And, and we see a good example of this in 1 John 3, 17, which says this, But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? It's obvious. That's a rhetorical question. It doesn't. If you have the world's goods, meaning you have the ability to meet a need, you see a brother in need, and you don't meet that need, how does God's love reside in you? It doesn't. That's not me. That's not my judgment. That's that's the Holy Spirit's judgment. Now, I'm not saying we don't have momentary failures, momentary sins where we fail to live as we ought to live. We're talking about the pattern. What is the consistent pattern of your life? Where there are momentary failures, those need to be confessed to sin and repented of and try to make it right. But that's not really what John is addressing here. He's just saying there's a consistent pattern. The consistent pattern is you see a need and you don't meet that need. How how does God's love reside in you? It doesn't. And another way to say it is you are demonstrating hatred towards your brother by not meeting that need. But, But understand that we're not just talking about like meeting physical needs. That's easy for us to understand. That's the illustration that John, John needs. But sometimes needs are non-material. A brother or sister in Christ needs encouragement. You see it, but you're too busy. You've got to go do something else. And you rush off without giving it a further thought. That's why our gathering together is so important. You're, gathering together is important because we're commanded to do so. But our gathering together also fosters an environment where we can minister to one another. So often people who are discouraged don't want to meet with us, don't want to meet with the body because they're just discouraged and they feel down. And, but that's the very thing they need. Satan wants them to stay home and stay discouraged. God wants you to minister to one another, to encourage one another to love and good deeds. It's part of what happens when we gather together. And beloved, this whole idea that, that, that love and hatred are, are polar opposites, but there's no in between them, is why I make the case that you can't just disconnect from a local church and be a healthy Christian. You, you can't just disconnect from a local church. I'm not talking about Medina Bible Church. I'm not making that case. Hey, you don't have to be part of this church, but any local church. Why? This is why you can't just disconnect from a local church and say, I don't care about the local church. Now, I understand. We're not getting into all the motives. There are sometimes some good reasons why people are burned out and hurt and why they want to walk away. But I'm just saying you can't. You can't let the hurt. You can't let the, 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 the kind of the, the burned out emotions that you've experienced with people cause you to give up on the church. Because if you give up on the church, what you're saying is, I don't care about other believers. That's really what you're saying. You would never probably say that to your, out loud. But that's the result of your actions. If you say it, I'm not going to participate with the local church. You're saying, I don't care about the local church. Which it's really, you're saying, I don't care about other Christians. In other words, you could say, I'm not going to demonstrate love. It's a, it's a form of hatred. And if that pattern goes on enough, it may be represented the fact that you're not even saved. You think you know God, but the lack of love, the consistent lack of love for your brethren in your life, man, it says something completely, completely different. In John's thinking, either the person loves or hates his brother. Again, there's no, there's no in-between. And notice the result of the test, which he gets to here. So you have this situation, if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, John just says it very bluntly, very plainly, very succinctly. He is a liar. Notice that he doesn't say something like, well, he's misguided, or, you know, he's, he's wrong. He uses very strong language. He's a liar. So the lie is that I love God. So if someone says that they love God and yet demonstrates hatred toward the brethren, it's not simply that they're misguided. They are actually telling a lie to themselves and also to others whom they would say that to. You know, some people are really, really good liars. 
You know, we, we typically want to believe that we would recognize like a really evil person who's lying to us. But the fact of the matter is, um, many times we cannot recognize that, right? except by something like looking at the actions. In this case, looking at the actions of, of the hatred. But John bluntly and authoritatively says this person is a liar. Now, we, we, we know what this term means, but just, just remember that it's someone, a liar is someone who speaks lies or speaks things that are not true, who speaks in a way in which he attempts to deceive another person. So again, God's saying this person isn't simply just misguided. They're actually lying. They're, de- they're deceiving themselves and deceiving others. And people who lie, liars, can tell lies so enthusiastically, so repeatedly, so consistently that they can deceive themselves, even themselves. Yet the diagnosis is the same. This person is a liar. It's very clear. This person is, does not love God is, is another way to look at this. So this test is provided so that we can identify false teachers. That's one of the reasons why John gave this. Remember, there were those who professed to know God and they were teachers within the church and they left the church. We saw that from 1 John 2. And he says, they, they left us because they were never really of us. For if they are of us, they would have remained uh, among us. So in a sense, John is saying, those that left the church, that demonstrated hatred towards the local church, and remember in those days, they didn't have multiple churches in one town. There was one church in town, pretty much, except for, the, maybe you can make a case that some of the larger cities, perhaps where Paul ministered to, there might have been multiple house churches. But there's no evidence of that in First John. They left, they left the, the church. They left the congregation. In other words, they were demonstrating hatred towards the congregation. And John is writing to address that. So this test is given so that, so that believers can, can help explain why people walk away. And if they walk away, if they demonstrate from the church totally, they're demonstrating hatred. And even though they say they love God, they, they don't. They're lying. But the test is also provided so we can examine ourselves. If the love of the brethren is absent in our lives, then we need to see ourselves as liars if we say that we love God. No one can love God and hate their brother. Scripture is very, very clear on this point. And again, this is given in a context where John is writing to build up assurance of salvation. He's not trying to tear it down. He is is working to build it up. So he's just saying true believers love. There's never going to be a case where a true believer is going to consistently hate his brother. And, and that's, that's the context of that. If you're truly saved, you're going to look at your life and you're going to see consistent love for the brethren, which will build up your assurance. Now, John tells us why this is true. Not only uh, does he give us the foundation for this test, but he tells us why this test is true. And he elaborates on that in the verses remaining. And so that's what we're going to spend the rest of our time looking at. So the justification for the test is how I would categorize this or outline it. So we saw the, the foundation for the test. We looked at the explanation of the test and in uh, verse um, 20. And here, um, in, uh, towards the end of verse 20 and the remaining verses, we'll see the justification for the test. So at the end of verse 20, John says this. He says, after saying so bluntly, he is a liar, he puts the word, the explanation in there. For the one who does not love his brother whom he, he has seen cannot love the brother I'm sorry, cannot love God whom he has not seen. So he's saying it's an impossibility for someone to love God who he hasn't seen if he doesn't also love his brother who he has seen. John is using an argument style which we would call arguing from the lesser to the greater. He's arguing from the easier to the more difficult. Scripture is saying here that loving someone who you can see is easier than loving God whom you cannot see. Now you might say, well, you don't know my neighbor. <laughs> you don't know my, my family or you don't know uh, whatever, fill in the, fill in the blank. All right? this, this, a statement like that may, may raise some doubts about this. Is it, is it really true that it's more difficult to love God whom we haven't seen than it is to love our brethren who we have seen? So that might raise some doubts because of the sinfulness of humanity, but, but what I want to say is we need to guard against putting our reason above the plain statements of Scripture. 
What I'm saying is that with our limited knowledge and our tendency to think sinfully, we cannot overrule the plain meaning of Scripture just because we don't understand it or have some doubts about it. Right? John says it very clearly. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. What, what I'm saying is if you think that loving God whom you cannot see is easier than loving God, sorry, is easier than loving your brother who, sorry, if you think that loving um, God whom you cannot see is easier than loving your brother who you can see, then you have seriously underestimated what it means to love God. And you've seriously overestimated your ability to love God. It's an inaccurate view. It's simply not true that someone can love God and not love his brother. Because loving your brother is a simpler thing to do. So, understand here that, that Scripture is not just saying that, if, that you, you know, if, if you, um, that you, not just that you will not love your brother, so in this particular situation, is that you cannot. It's an impossibility. The text says, for the one who does not love his brother whom he has not seen cannot. It's not just will not, but it's cannot love God whom he has not seen. Now, now don't misunderstand what John is saying. John is not saying that to truly love God, you must, you must love your brother first. That, 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 just, that, that can't be. The path to loving God goes through the gate of Jesus Christ, not through the gate of practical love for one another. We couldn't even do that. Salvation and the new birth are needed before one can truly love God. You can't earn your salvation. You can't cause your own spiritual, spiritual birth. So salvation and the new birth only come by faith in Jesus Christ as the Son of God. So understand that John is not addressing how to love God. He's just making a statement that if you love God and hate your brother, that's an impossibility. Because if you truly loved God, you would see love of the brethren. And so he's strengthening that. And that, that is really the, the first justification for the test of counterfeit love. So let's, let's look at the second, and we'll go through these uh, more quickly as we get to the, towards the end. The, the second is seen in verse 21. Loving the brethren is commanded by God. Verse 21, and this is the commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. So now John justifies the test of counterfeit love for God by pointing to the command of God that we would love one another. This points us, first of all, to God's command that we would love our neighbor as ourselves. We find this in Leviticus 19.18, and this is reiterated by Jesus as the second greatest commandment. But as I've argued in, before in looking at 1 John, John's primary um, argument is not love of, the, of your neighbor, but it's love of your brother. In other words, specifically a brother or sister in Christ, another Christian. That is the context. And the reason for the context because, is because the love of the brethren is so sure. It's such a sure mark of genuine salvation that John builds on that throughout the entire epistle. That doesn't remove the obligation to love your neighbor as yourself. So be clear about that. It doesn't remove the obligation for us to love even our enemies. So those are still there. Those are valid commands from our Lord. But he's focusing on the love of the brethren because it is such a sure test that it's going to be there if someone is genuinely saved. And and here he's emphasizing that, that commandment, the commandment specifically of Jesus that Jesus gave to his disciples that they would love one another. For example, John in John 13, verse 35, 34 and 35, John 13, 34, 35 says this, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. You say, remember we looked at that, we, we said that it wasn't a new in the sense of a command to love, but it was new in the sense of the depth of the love. Because gone are the days where Jesus' command is that we would love each other as we love ourselves. That's the old part. That's what we're called to do to our neighbor. But for those who are in Christ, for fellow Christians, our call is to love each other even as Christ has loved us. 
We talked about how deep a love the Father has for us and what a wonder and an unbounded love the Savior has for us. That is the standard. That's the new standard with which which we are to use in our excelling of love towards one another. So John rallies as another justification for this test of counterfeit love for God um, that we are are commanded to love by God. But that's not all. In verse 1 of chapter 5, He shows us that loving the brethren is a supernatural byproduct of being made a child of God. And this is, again, this is not new, so we can cover it. We don't have to go as far into depth on these particular passages of Scripture. But but he is using this as a means to justify the test. He says in verse 1, Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and whoever loves the Father loves the child born of him. So he's using the analogy of a family, how he's built on, he's used in the past the fact that as you become a child of God, you inherit his characteristics. That's, that he's used that argument in the past. Here he is saying that the one who has been born of God will love another person who has also been born of God. And I'm not going to touch on too much the, the phrase, whoever believes in Jesus, because that's going to tie in with the message next week as we look at verses 4 and 5 as we talk about our faith and the faith that overcomes the world. So we'll take a look at that part of it uh, next week. Today we're staying focused on the fact that John is giving us the love of the brethren as a test of faith and really giving us a test of counterfeit love of God. For the person who says they love God, if they hate their brother, they're a liar. So that's, that's what he's doing here. So the next justification for this is given really um, in this verse that, that he is born that being born of God, you will love others who are also born of God. The, the um, fourth justification is seen in the beginning of verse 2. He says, by this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and observe His commandments. So really those are, are two different, I'm going to split them into two different justifications. The first justification is, by this we know the children of God. So He's given us a way by which we can know. This isn't the only way, this is just another way to know. By this uh, is the love of God, uh, sorry, by this we know that we love the children of God when we love God. So loving God um, is a manifestation, is one way to examine whether we're loving the brethren. These two, these two things are interconnected. You cannot love God without loving the brethren. You cannot love the brethren without loving God. These, they're just totally interconnected. You break one, you break the other. You have one, you have the other. You don't have one, you don't have the other. They're just tied together in an inseparable way. Um, And that's what John very clearly uh, shows us there. But not only that we love God, but look, he ties that in with, I would say, another um, way that he justifies the test of of exposing the false believer, the one who says, exposing the liar. At the end of that, verse 2 says, and observe his commandments. So loving the brethren is a manifestation of obedience to God. Right? So he's saying, by this, we love the children of God. When we love God, that's, that's, that gives us the capacity to love when we are connected to God, when we are born again. He gives us that capacity to love, and we love him first, even before we go and love others. Otherwise, we don't have the capacity for loving others in the agape sense in that sacrificial sense. But he doesn't leave it there. He says, and observe his commandments. So loving the brethren is a manifestation of obedience to God. So these things, these verses all tie together. Uh, they're intertwined in, in a very uh, uh, style, that, that, a style that fits how John teaches in that, in that spiral fashion, in the interconnected fashion. So the love of the brethren is, is tied not only to the love of God, but also to observing his commandments. And he very quickly adds on to that. In building this argument, he says this in verse 3. For this is the love of God. So he's going to define the love of God for us. That we keep his commandments, which is similar to what Jesus said. If you love me, you obey my commandments. So again, I reiterate that much of the, of what the content of 1 John is, is taken from Jesus' sermons. 
John just takes what he heard Jesus teach and he builds upon it and he, and he just reiterates it and he, and he circles around time and time again to help us understand the very thing that he heard Jesus teach. But he says this, for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. Now when we think about commandments, what comes to mind? Maybe like a, you know, Pilgrim's Progress with you know, Christian and this big load on his back. That, that's the idea with being burdened down with, in Christian sense, it was a sin. But sometimes we look at God's commandments as a burden. But look what he says here. His commandments are what? Not burdensome. Not burdensome. They're only burdensome when we try to do it in our own strength or according to our own wisdom, our own ways. When we walk according to the, the passions and desires of the flesh instead of walking in the spirit. Now, when he's talking about commandments, we could summarize it and say, the commandments of God are this, that you believe in the name of Jesus Christ, his son, as you love one another. So that, in the context of 1 John, does the two biggies. But if you want to drill down and know what does it mean to love one another, all you got to do is do a little Bible study. Use a concordance, a physical one, or you can use your electronic concordance, and search for the phrase, one another. Now, you'll have to throw out some that don't quite apply in this context, but you'll get a long list, especially in the New Testament, of what it means to love one another. I'll just read read a few of these, because it helps us understand what it means, and it'll also help us to grow in this love. This love is, is here, it is evident. I think this church is an extremely loving church, an extremely welcoming church, So this is not at all a a rebuke of us. It is simply a a rally cry, uh, an encouragement, first of all, that you're doing well and also an encouragement to excel still more. Because it's by our love for one another that's one of the marks that that the Lord will use to help help us be the witness to the the world that he calls us to be. So for example, what do I mean by the one another? For example, Romans 12.10. Be devoted to one another. Be devoted to one another. Give preference to one another in honor. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, Paul goes on. That's in Romans 12, 16. Romans 13, 18. Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another, which is a reiteration of the main idea. Romans 14, 13. This is a prohibition. This is something not to do. It says, do not judge one another. Anymore. In Romans 14, 19, calls us um, to pursue the things, pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. Romans 15, 5. Now may the God of peace who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another in Christ Jesus. So we're to be of the same mind. We are to Romans 15, 7, we are to accept one another. Romans 15, 14, we are to admonish one another. Romans 16, 16, we are to greet one another, right? With a holy kiss, meaning very genuinely, not, not superficially. We're to warmly welcome each other. 1 Corinthians um, 6, 7, again, it's something we should not do. It's, he's rebuking the fact that they have lawsuits with one another, implying that we are not to have lawsuits uh, with one another. So for those who are married, he calls us to stop depriving one another. 1 Corinthians 7, 5. 1 Corinthians eleven thirty three 33 calls us to, to not be selfish in our partaking of the Lord's communion, but to wait for one another. In other words, you're considering that other. 1 Corinthians 12, 25. We are to have the same care for one another. In other words, we're not to like have just, just to really care for like one special family or one special person. or You're not just called to take care of your pastor. You're called to have the same care for one another. Right? We, we, we're not going to have uh, some, some privileged elites, is what he's saying. Take the same care of one another. In Galatians 5.13, we're called to serve one another. And it adds, adds the means through love. Galatians 5.15 is a prohibition. Do not bite and devour one another. Take care that you're not consumed by one another. It's not talking about cannibalism there. It's talking about attitudes and how we either attack or 
uh, one another, tear down one another, or build up one another. Galatians 5.26, again, another prohibition. Let us not become boastful, challenging one another or envying one another. That would include not only what they have physically, but also perhaps their spiritual gifting or ministry. Ephesians 4.2, we're called to show tolerance for one another in love. Ephesians 5, I mean, sorry, 4.25 remembers, uh, reminds us that we are to speak truth, each one of you with his neighbor, for we are members of one another, using the analogy of a body. Ephesians 4.32, we are to be kind to one another. Ephesians 5.19, we are speaking, we're to speak to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord in our heart. Ephesians 5.21, we are to be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Philippians 2.3, we are to regard one another as more important than ourselves. Colossians 3.9 is a prohibition. Do not lie to one another. Colossians 3.13, we are to bear with one another, forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Colossians 3.16, we are to admonish one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. 1 Thessalonians 3.12 calls us to, to love one another. It just reiterates the main theme. First uh, Thessalonians four nine reiterates the main theme again that we are to love one another. First Thessalonians five eleven says we are to encourage one another and build one another up. First Thessalonians five thirteen says we are to live in peace with one another. First Thessalonians five fifteen says that we're to do good for one another. I could con- continue on and on. I have another uh, full page of the one another's, but I think you get the point. You, do you want to know what it practically means to love one another? Scripture couldn't be clear. It gives lots of practical applications. Right? At times, it's going to require sacrifice. It's by nature the, the very definition of, of, of agape love. But understand, beloved, when we do these things in the power of the Holy Spirit, and we do it for the glory of Christ, these things are not burdensome. Are they, are they easy? No, I'm not saying that. At times, it's going to require dying to yourself. You're only, made, you're only made hard because of our sin. But when we turn to Christ and ask him to help us, they are not burdensome. And in fact, it really turns into joy. Right? Jesus said, it is better to give than to receive. It's better. And this is part of that giving. We're not just talking about finances. This is part of that. He will fill you with his joy where that obedience is certainly not burdensome at all. Even for the people that are not easy to love because you're loving them in the name of Christ. You're loving them for the sake of the God who loved you. As you, you, love, him because, you love them because you, as you reflect upon God's undeserved love that you have received. So if this, if this is an area where you struggle in, one way to foster loving others is to think about how much how much God loved you, though you didn't deserve any of that. You didn't deserve it. And yet, you could say Christ, for the joy set before him, endured. In part, to bring you to God and to build you up and encourage you. So, beloved, understand, when, we, when, when John looks at this, when he, when he draws his attention to love, it's for the sake of, of showing us that it's non-negotiable. Love of the brethren is non-negotiable. If anybody says that they love God but hate the brethren, you could I, I even apply it to the local church. They, they, they just hate the local church. Not just this one, but in general. And that's manifested by their abandoning of the church. That They're saying God calls them a liar. That's very serious. But it also should be very encouraging for those of you who haven't abandoned the love of the brethren. Right? Which is John's main point. He said, look at your life. If you're truly saved, you will see this love be manifested. And as a result of that, you should build your assurance that you are indeed a child of God. Beloved, God doesn't want you to be deceived, either about your, your own situation, primarily about yours, but also about anybody that perhaps has left the church and, and abandon the church. He, he gives us clear instruction. 
so that we would not be deceived by that counterfeit love of God for those who say they love God, but indeed really do not. Let's pray. Our Lord God, what can we say in light of these things? Lord, you loved us. You first loved us. And Lord, we, we confess that we are completely dependent upon you and your love. Number one, to love you. But number two, to love others. And we just ask, Lord, that you would help us to walk in the Spirit so that we would not gratify the desires of the flesh, but that we would indeed love one another as you've called us to do and that we would excel still more. Thank you, God, that you've given, given us a very loving church, a very sacrificial church, a church that, that does reach out uh, to each other and caring for one another. And that, that is a result of your work in our lives. And just ask, Lord, that you would uh, just help us to excel still more in this. And that uh, the world would know that we are truly your children by the love that we have for one another, just as your word says. Help us to meditate on these things, Lord God. Help us to apply them by the power of your Holy Spirit for our own sanctification, for the building up of this body, but also for your glory. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.